there isn't some magic trail ferry out there. The this the state government is not looking out for mountain bikers. There isn't a an office of mountain biking in the state government. Um, there there's there's nobody looking out for it. The industry is doing their thing because they're running a business that's based on profits. So they're not like spending all of their effort trying to create and and further mountain bike advocacy. It's frankly all of us that that do that. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you'll hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Joe V is our guest for Episode 7. Joe spent most of his career working for Trek Bicycle Company. When Joe retired, he decided to take the role of president of Canva Trails in northern Wisconsin. Learn more about Joe and what goes into running a trail club during this episode. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Celsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wallenach of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Here we are back with another episode of Trail Effect. And today we have Joe V, Joe Vadabancourt. Awesome. I was going to, I was going to see it. I was going to launch immediately into this is how you actually say it, but nice yeah. work. Um, he is the current president of Canva, which is a rather large trail organization within the area of Northern Wisconsin. That's comprised of some uh, national forest land and some County forest land. He has been in the bike industry for 30 plus years between uh, roles and in, in bike shops in general at Trek. That's why, that's why the hair on my chin here is gray, no longer. Uh, yeah, our, our, our listeners that. can't see that, but I will oh, be able okay. to, I can see that. We're just <laughs> recording audio, but awesome. But yeah, Joe's been around for quite a long time and, you know, is, is still, is still within the bike industry. He's also got a consulting firm called Goodheart Solutions. Yes, sir. Let's roll into your backstory and how you um, how you got into cycling in general and and where that took you to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Okay, so normally when I tell this story, I I, I start off with well, first the dinosaurs died, and then I went to work at Trek, uh, which explains the gray hair, which explains the thirty plus years, etc. Um, but in but in all seriousness, um, I'm uh, 59 years old and I've been in the bike business my pretty much my entire life. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, that does make me a lifer on the one hand. And then on top of that, a insider, I guess. Uh, so what, yeah, I grew, grew up working in bike shops, was super interested in bike riding and racing. Uh, you know, back in those days, there really wasn't mountain biking. So I started my cycling career uh, on a road bike, as a lot of us did. Uh, and then at some point realized that it's a whole lot more fun to to ride in the dirt and uh, now consider myself a 
a mountain biker primarily, road biker secondarily, and that switched somewhere in the last 30 years or 35 years, let's call it. Uh, yeah, so worked in bike shops, went to work at Trek in 1988. Uh, a lot of people that, that I tell that to go, wow, I was in second grade in 1988 or something like that. But And in 1988, Trek was a small company. I was an outside sales rep. Uh, I had a territory that I covered. It was uh, southern edge of Utah all the way to the Canadian border. Oh, wow. Which was huge. And I spent a lot of windshield time driving to get to a bike shop somewhere to talk to them about uh, the Trek brand. Super fun. Got to know the kind of ins and outs of how to run a decent bike shop. Saw it done well, saw it done not done well. And then, and then moved to, uh, back to Wisconsin from Utah. I was living in Park City before that. Moved to Wisconsin when Trek uh, kind of started an expansion curve, bought a bunch of other brands. And, and business grew, started growing, um, early nineties. And so 93, I moved to Madison from Utah as Trek was buying, uh, the Gary Fisher brand. And I was the first Gary Fisher product manager when it, once Trek owned it. Kind of always was a bike knob. You know, I was, I was the guy out in the field that was sending notes in about, you know, could we spec like this? Could we design a bike that did that? And, uh, John Burke, the president of the company, called me at one point and said, you know, I got to get you to stop sending all these notes in. Why don't you just come here and take over the Fisher brand? <laughs> so I did. Uh, and we did a lot of great things. I uh, got to know Gary Fisher, traveled, traveled to Asia my first times with Gary. Now, there's some stories that would be worth telling, but I can't do that. can't do that on a morning podcast uh, interview. But um, first two times to Asia were was paired up with Gary Fisher, just the two of us. And those were some interesting trips and interesting days. <laughs> so I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we did a lot of fun things, not just that, not just in our job, but, you know, pushed a lot of great fun mountain bike technologies forward. Um, I spec'd the very first product line ever to be all grip shift. That kind of goes on my tombstone. Maybe uh, <laughs> we, we felt like Gary and I felt like we kind of revolutionized mountain bike geometry with something we called Genesis geometry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was basically kind of started the industry on the progression, if you will, from mountain bike geometry really separating itself from road bikes that it started with, you know, and started talking about longer front centers and shorter stems and shorter rear ends and all of the kinds of things that the Fisher brand was was known for. I did that for about, I did that for four model years, uh, five years, and then um, was asked to take over and manage all of product development from there, uh, from, from the Fisher brand. So I stepped to a role that I was over the top of all of product development for Trek globally. So at that time, they Trek owned a, the Klein brand was the Le Monde, uh, license, uh, Fisher, of course, Bontrager, two European brands, which most Americans would never have heard of kind of European city bike brands. Uh, Diamant is one is the oldest bike brand in Germany and then Villiger uh, in Switzerland. Uh, and we had product development people spread around the world playing a part in, in all of those. And my job was to manage all of that and kind of make sense of it and help it to fit together. Um, somewhere along the way, marketing got added to my portfolio of things I was responsible for. And so uh, marketing and product development, that's probably about 15 years of my time at, at Trek was managing marketing and product development. 
during that time, lots of things changed. Trek went from a small brand to a big brand uh, during that time. Um, proud of the things we did with Trek, with turning it from kind of a family brand to a to a performance brand, both on the road and the mountain bike side. During that time, of course, you know Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France multiple times, mm-hmm. so that was a big deal for the for the Trek brand. Uh, and then, but then post Lance uh, is when kind of the brand really focused on. Uh, mountain bikes. Uh, uh, from there, in that role, uh, that was like, as I said, that was probably a good 15 years at at Trek. And then in my last couple of years there, I built a, a direct retail network uh, as Trek brand now owns quite a few of its own retail stores. Before that, it was all, all the product was sold through independent retail stores. So, you know, go to your local bike shop on the corner of the Joe's bike shop or Smith's in, in the cross where you live, Josh. That's an independent bike dealer, and Trek sells to them, and they turn around and you know sell to customers in in a local community. And then over time, Trek has invested in, in a bunch of its own stores. I think they're up to about 110, 120 stores now, uh, oh, wow. globally uh, around the world. And so that was it. That was my final challenge there at Trek was figuring out how to take the wholesale company and at, tack on this retail arm of it as well. Uh, and that's for a lot of different reasons, you know, to better connect with the marketplace. You're not, there's not somebody in between you now and the end customer. Uh, and even for a brand like Trek, you know, with a big, uh, presence, it's sometimes hard to find a good dealer or the right dealer, uh, in a town. Um, and so sometimes it just became easier to open our own store. Left Trek after just short of 30 years, 29 years. Few people have said, "Joe, that's a, you can round that up and call that 30. But to be fair, it was it was 29 years. Uh, left there in uh, January 1st was my official last day, um, 2017. Uh, started my own little consulting business to to be involved with people that might need some help uh, in the outdoor industry. And 100 percent of my uh, clients have been in the outdoor space, uh, and most of them are in the cycling world. So still very involved from a business side in the cycling world. It's my passion and fascination. Uh, I don't have bikes on the wall behind me in my office here, but right below me is my workshop where there's, I don't know, 18, 19 bikes down there. Sometimes you can't get rid of an old bike and you never really, you don't really know if you're ever really going to ride it again. Mm-hmm. And end of the summer comes around you go, mm, man, I haven't even ridden that bike this year, but still that's hard sometimes to get get rid of them. There's only a couple of road bikes down there. There's a, uh, you know, gravel bike and a cyclocross bike, but then there's another, whatever that, whatever the balance of that count is of various, uh, types of mountain bikes, whether it's a fat bike on one end to a, like I said, I just sold my downhill bike. So I don't have a downhill bike, but, uh, I have an enduro, uh, big travel, 160 millimeter travel. So somewhere in between that 160 and a rigid fat bike for winter, there's a lot of mountain bikes down there. So, yeah. So let's talk about that transition. Um, when you, when you went to Goodhart Solutions, you also moved from Southern Wisconsin, Southeastern Wisconsin up to Northern Wisconsin. Yeah. And then assumed the role of president of Canva. Let's yeah. Let's talk about a, how that role then kind of came together. Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes you wake up and you roll out of bed and you go, I don't, I can't really figure out how I got here, but here I am. But <laughs> Uh, no, there's a story, of course. Um, so we we bought a little place up in the Hayward area, uh, 
specifically to have a house as a vacation house that we could ski from. And we don't have downhill skiing so much in Wisconsin, small areas, but we have a lot of cross-country skiing. And the best cross-country skiing is up here in the Hayward area on the Berkey Ski Trail. Um, But the real reason that we bought this was because we wanted to be able to have a place that we could always rely on doing riding some single track and in, in, in an awesome network of single track. And we had this place for five or so years before we left track and, and used it as a weekend place or, you know, a week long in the summer where we could ride our brains out or, you know, come up for Berkey week and, and ski, that sort of thing. Uh, we had a house in Madison and uh, just decided, you know, we'd rather live where, not where we could ride only on the weekends from the back door, but where you could hit single track on a lunchtime ride from your back door every day if you wanted. Uh, sold the place in Madison, moved into our little cabin up here full time. We got all kinds of stories about whether you should move into a weekend place full time or whether you should just sell that place and get a, a real house. Uh, we didn't. We moved into the cabin, which means we've also spent the last three years in, in a full time remodel project on, all, on some facet of it. Uh, but nonetheless, so we live in uh, the Hayward area, uh, right off of the Berkey Trail. I can ski in the winter from my back door. And in the summer, I can uh, about maybe three quarters of a mile dirt road to, to single track. Uh, also sort of single track right out, right out the back door. So uh, it was all, all about that. You know, one of the things that I'm really proud of an of a awesome long career that I had at Trek where it did a lot of great things. But one of the things I never really had time for when I was in the industry was get involved with it, with some sort of a local community group to to further some some something you're passionate about in your local community. And from from the day I discovered mountain bikes, late 80s, mid 80s, some somewhere in that range, I think I had a, a I had a Richie Ascent, I believe, was the first real mountain bike that I that I purchased mid '80s. So from the day I discovered mountain bikes to now, uh, I always just kind of felt like, well, that's that's my thing right there. So uh, got here after we moved here a couple of months later was the first uh, uh, board or election for board members where there were a couple of board seats open, and so I ran for one of those, was elected in. I guess not, not everybody knew me, but they said, well, he's been in the industry, so he must know something about trail trails and, and mountain bikes and, and a community. Uh, got voted in and um, accepted my seat. And in, in the first month or so, uh, Canvas set up a, with a little bit of paid staff, but a bunch of volunteer staffs in a committee structure. So as soon as I got on the board trying to get to know who does what within the organization, I went to every committee meeting for the first couple of months uh, just to sit in, understand what the marketing committee did and the events committee and the trails committee and whatever other fundraising committee and whatever else was was there in a nonprofit. And of course, found myself saying, well, why do you do it this way? Why not, why not that way? How about this or that? Or could we have initiative about that? Or what about that trail? Could we put a new trail in over here? That sort of thing. And a lot of that starts to bubble up at a board meeting. And frankly, the rest of the board looked at me and maybe a third board meeting in and said, why don't you be president? Because you're throwing out all that stuff. Why don't you go do something about all of that? <laughs> and I usually describe that as it's a, it's a little bit like um, a musical chairs game, you know, where like you pull away a chair and 
somebody doesn't have a place to sit down. Uh, well, that, it's a little bit, yeah, there you go. It's a little <laughs> bit like that where music stopped and there wasn't a chair and I was the only one standing and I ended up board president. Um, no real experience at being a board president of a nonprofit before, but a pretty strong passion that I wear on my sleeve uh, about mountain bikes and a community's involvement with mountain bikes and mountain bikers and the mountain bike trails. Ended up ended up president um, of an awesome organization that manages about 120 miles of single track in northern Wisconsin, effectively cable to Hayward corridor, and then a cluster. Uh, north in the Bayfield area, two counties, Bayfield and Sawyer County, and then a little bit on, as Josh said at the beginning, a little bit uh, on the National Forest, uh, Schwamigan National Forest. Uh, oh, and I'm leaving out a couple of sections of private land that we uh, operate on as well. So, yeah, a lot of challenges there with it, with trying to maintain 120 miles of single track, trying to maintain relationships with a bunch of different groups that we have that uh, trail across their properties. Uh, trying to comply with different regulations, different policies in one county forest versus another. And you're in a county forest, which gets used for all kinds of other things. You know, there's ATVers in the summer and snowmobilers in the winter and hunters in hunting season and trail runners and hikers and equestrian trails paralleling yours and all the challenges that can come with, with all of that uh, and trying to, to build a quality experience for mountain bikers awesome piece of single track um, in the woods with all of that going on at the same time. So fun stuff, uh, fulfilling, frustrating all at the same time. Uh, but uh, in the end, it's pretty cool to stand back and say, get to be involved with, with um, creating that experience for a lot of different people. So yeah, that's kind of how, that's a lot of background. That's uh, where I was in my career, am in my career, and then how I kind of ended up in the, in the board president seat. And I've been president for two years now, board terms at, at Canva because the nonprofit board and the bylaws are, it's a three-year term, uh, you know, so I'll hit the end of that. So I won't be board president forever. So somebody else will come along behind me and, and be board president as well. Um, and you're trying to leave a, I don't, know, I don't know if leave a legacy is the right way to think about it, but leave the organization in better shape than you found it has been the goal. So, Yeah. Let's talk about boards and just kind of the inner workings of trail org organizations in general. Yeah. You know, you, you touched a little bit on staff. So you have, you have your board, but independent of your board, you have staff. Let's kind of delve into a little bit on each side so you can kind of set this tone for the inner workings of a nonprofit sure. like Canva. Yeah. So, you know, at some point in, the, in an organization's evolution, well, let's back up. So, um, Canva, like most trail groups, starts the same way. A couple of locals say, wouldn't it be awesome if we could have a piece of single track in this woods or on that hill or on that mountain or coming down the side of that hill or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And it can start um, rather clandestine like uh in other words people like get out there without a lot of permission and build trails the better way to do it of course is to interact with whoever owns that property or manages that property if it's public land build a consensus in a in a, in a program and a, and a policy that allows you to to build those trails and it starts with a bunch of volunteers so you end up with you know five people with 
shovels and rakes and chainsaws building trails. And that's pretty much how most trails start. Uh, and they, you know, they kind of, they have some level of success. And then you, then you start realizing that to do it properly, it takes some funding and some organization and some execution or, or education rather to, to make that happen. And so a lot of people then look at each other and say, well, maybe we should incorporate in some level and maybe we can create it, set it up as a nonprofit. As soon as you do that and set it up as a nonprofit, well, then, you know, the, the tax laws require that you have a board. Uh, and so a lot of times in that initial phases, it's those same five people look at each other and say, well, let's be the board then, you know, because we have to have a board for to be an official nonprofit. And you go about your business and you lay tra- trail down and you hopefully do it well, sometimes not, but hopefully do it well. And people start to discover it. And then you realize, well, we're going to need more trail because there's a lot of people have discovered our trail. So now you need funding for that uh, because you need to buy more equipment or you need to figure out how to pay somebody to do it because volunteers are just not getting it done. And so then you start, you know, fundraisers and chasing funding and chasing granting uh, agencies to, to, put a trail in lots of times you can do that through the county forest or through the national forest or a state tourism bureau or uh, rtp uh, recreational trails uh, grant there's a lot of different ways and at some point it starts to become large enough that you just can't do it with volunteers even with this volunteer board that you've structured you, you still can't do it so the progression then ends up you hire somebody put somebody on staff who you pay, maybe part-time originally, you know, uh, or in the early stages, you know, pay somebody to work a couple hours a day on it uh, or a couple of days a week on it. And if you're successful at it, you know, that probably progresses to maybe a full-time executive director role within there, who then coordinates activities with the volunteer board and other volunteers. And in Canvas case, at some point, it even became came too much for volunteers to maintain all of the trail. You know, we've our progression went from, you know, five miles of trail to 20 miles of trail, 30 to 40, and now 120 miles of trail. It's frankly just too much to maintain with a with a volu- all volunteer um, staff. So or or not a staff, but a volunteers. Um, and so Canva now has a full-time executive director. Uh, we have had in the past a part-time marketing and communications person, uh, and then a, a part-time during the biz- the summer months trail staff uh, you know, of sometimes up to five people, sometimes three people, depends on the budget for the year and the list of things we're trying to get done on the trails. Uh, board boards normally in a small nonprofit will remain volunteer, so you know, like you you're look at your local trail club and, and you say, well, you've got a staff and you've got a board. Well, remember the board is volunteer. So they're, they're doing it in addition to their career maybe, or families or whatever else they're doing. They're doing this um, because they're passionate about the organization and the trails and the, and the mountain bike community. They're doing it normally as, as a volunteer. Uh, and that's true of Canva as well. The board positions are, are volunteer. Um, and so sometimes you you have a board that is super engaged because you have really high level of passion and maybe you know some other board has a bunch of time they can put to it and then other times you'll look at the board of an organization as because it transitions nobody's on a board forever even if you don't have 
uh, bylaws that limit those terms, they're seldom on there forever. So they transition and maybe the next group has as much time, maybe they don't. So it kind of ebbs and flows. And that's been one of the, that's one of the reasons I would say you can't do it all with volunteers because it ebbs even when you formalize it and you have boards with official officer positions and you're, and you successful at fundraising and the things that a board might do. You're still, it ebbs and flows with how much time people can put into it. And that's why I say then one of the progressions of an organization is you move to a paid staff because a paid staff mm-hmm. will get it done because they're paid to do it, right? I mean, most people understand that you, what you're asked to do at your job is what you're going to make sure you get done because you want to hold on to that job. Well, it's exactly the same with a paid staff at a trail organization. We can count on our summertime. We, uh, I mentioned we have a paid trail staff in the summertime of somewhere between three and five, you know, it depends on the year. Uh, this past year, we just had three, but you can count on that three when you say this is the list of projects for this week. Well, they're paid. They're, they're going to get that done or make, make a darn good effort to, to get it done. And that, and that doesn't mean volunteers are not passionate. It's just volunteers are by the definition of word volunteer. And, and, you know, they can, uh, yeah, I got two hours on a Thursday that I can get out and do something on a trail. Well, that's not, maybe not enough. So, so that's how we got to, to a paid, uh, staffing positions in, in Canva. And, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of paid positions in there because it, provides that consistency, provides all that dedication to get it, getting it done, creates institutional learning and institutional knowledge ac- across the organization. Um, yeah. So we've been successful at, at Canva in maintaining a budget large enough to be assured we can maintain that paid staff, which is what gets so much done for us. So I think that I think that a board is really important, though. So as, as important as a paid staff is, uh, the paid staff is going to do the day to day activities, whatever those are. They're going to you know run the office. They're going to hi- hire uh, and manage employees. There are other employees that are going to work in the organization. They're going to do the tasks that are laid out. They're going to run the events if you're going to have events on on your trails. But you'll notice that what, what I didn't really list there is uh, oversight, governance, and really fundraising activities. Those are oftentimes driven by the board of, of a nonprofit and really should be driven by, by the board of a nonprofit. Uh, in Canva's case, uh, our bylaws allow up to 13 uh, board members. We've never had, thir- well, I shouldn't say never. Uh, I don't know for a fact that we've never had 13. But I can't look back in the records and see that we've ever had 13 uh, board members. Uh, when I stepped onto the board, I believe there were seven board members. Uh, there's currently nine. Um, and um, that's a pretty good number, pretty comfortable number because you need, a, you need a board president. You need a vice president because the board president can't, sometimes can't make it to every meeting or, or be involved with every decision. Uh, you need a treasurer. Because a board has a fiduciary responsibility to the organization to manage the funds. If you pull in a couple hundred thousand dollars in funding through different fundraisers, well, there's a responsibility that that funding is being used in the way it was intended to to manage the trails and pay the staff and run events. And then you have a, you have a secretary because you have to have an, a 
official way to record what the board has done so that not only for tax purposes with the with the government but also your members of an organization would like to know that their board is watching out for their interest and watching out for the the organization and the trails themselves uh, in our board um, we have a bylaw that that allows uh, up to 49% of the seats on the board to be appointed by the board but 51% have to be elected by the members uh, and so in our current board. Uh, there's three uh, spots that are uh, appointed by the uh, board. And then the balance were elected uh, by the members. That ensures that the members have the, the largest voice, if you will, in managing the, the organization. But the, you, the appointed positions allows bringing somebody in the board who the community may not know so well, but the board knows and they bring a skill set to, to the board that the board can make use to the betterment of the organization. You know, for example, um, we brought somebody onto the board last year and she took over the transition of our membership program from a spreadsheet based on somebody's laptop to a, to a CRM based online uh, digital way of managing our membership base. And she had that skill set. The rest of the board didn't. Our executive director didn't either. And so we brought that person onto the board to achieve a task uh, like that. And she's done an awesome job and super excited and thankful that we were able to bring her on the board to, to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. Other good examples would probably be uh, bringing in somebody that has an accounting background yeah. or maybe an attorney. Yeah. All of those. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you have legal fees in an organization, whether it's setting up the organization, uh, amending the bylaws of the organization. You have to go get insurance as an organization. Uh, you, you might have um, intellectual property that you want to protect, branding, trail names, uh, w- whatever that is. Well, most organizations would rather see, I'm sorry, most members of an organization, if they're paying their membership, in our case, it's a $50 membership, they probably would rather see that that $50 is going to building trails or paying the executive director versus paying a lawyer to to help us document our intellectual property. So, so sometimes you, you know, you go look for a lawyer that you, that is passionate about the organization that will donate some of their time through the board, through being a board member to help get some of that sort of thing done. And those are the, those are some of the forgotten activities that it takes a a nonprofit, even a not a small nonprofit that runs some trails is still a business. Uh, it's it has to function like a business does. It ha- it brings in income, has expenses, needs to balance that at the end of the year. Um, can't really run at a deficit beyond whatever cash reserves that you have, and and so you, so that's what the you know you that's what the combination of the executive director and the board is meant to do is so that that organization is still there in the following year, um, and that's part of the maturation of a small nonprofit because you, you, again, you start off a bunch of volunteers that just want to put some trails down on the ground. And then at some point, proud to say Canva, Canva has traditionally a budget of about $250,000 a year. Well, that'd be quite irresponsible for us to take in that $250,000 and not spend it to the betterment of the organization or build a financial security for the organization for the future. So that it's still here, um, 
mm-hmm. a decade or 20 years from now uh, and still doing the job that we all want it to do. And and that's just like running any business. If you're in a bike shop or a bakery or a coffee shop or whatever, you have that same goal and same responsibility. And so I've been proud and excited that I've been able to you know bring some of that um, thinking and, and uh, passion both for mountain bikes and for creating a sustainable organization or maintaining it. I'm not saying it wasn't sustainable when I walked in. It was, but maintaining and, and solidifying that out in, into the future. So, Yeah. So moving forward, I've noticed uh, Canva's done a, a handful of changes here in 2020. You guys have a new website, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have a new logo mm-hmm. and you've been doing some fundraising. Maybe you can go into a little bit of that and then we'll get into, yeah, into some other stuff. Yeah. So, uh, good, good, good eye, Josh. All that stuff has has changed for Canva. So, again, you go back to that story of you start off with you know you're chainsawing trees and and putting trails down on the ground to and and then at some point you have a bunch of trail, and then so what does the organization transition to? Well, in in our minds, the current board, and and if you go onto our website, which is new, I'll get there in a moment. Um, and take a look at our strategic plan. Well, trails are still one of the pillars of that strategic plan, but there's five other pillars that are not trails. And and a one of, part of the key is, I think, maturing the organization or transitioning the organization from an organization that's solely about putting trails down on the ground and enhancing that with building community, putting together events uh, that that enhance user experience connecting our local community to the visitor community that comes here. Proud to say that we have more than 25,000 visitors a year to the trails. We've done an economic impact report and, and surveying, and we know that 75, almost 75% of those are people that don't live here. Well, that's, that's an enormous asset to the community that those 75% of those people coming here from somewhere else. So if we can help connect them with the coffee shop, the restaurant, the hotel, the Airbnb, and and build enthusiasm in the local community for the mountain bikers, then the mountain bikers have a better experience coming to town and the community gets more uh, appreciation and involvement with them. That's all of which um, what you see, what what I believe and what the current board believes is really the, where we move Canva to. It's more of a, not to walk away from trails, the trails are super important, but to enhance our existence from a trail group to a community organization and a, and frankly, an economic driver in the, in the community. And so the organization has gone through transition, frankly, all the way to its core. The strategic plan changed. Um, part of the strategic plan was to present a brand, if you will, to uh, our, our fans and, and customers and, and audience uh, and community. That is a brand that's bigger than just about the trail, that it's about the community. That brought an all new logo and refresh and the way we're using that, that logo to reality. That's dro- uh, driven us all the way back to the way we communicate with our, with our members and our, and our community. So we have an all new website focused on delivering information as quickly and easily as possible and representing the, the awesome, exciting lifestyle that mountain biking is. Again, connecting the, our local community with our, with our visitor and, and uh, uh, enthusiast community. Uh, and, then, and then 
give people a way to interact with Canva either through membership directly via the website and get your hands on some awesome Canva gear, sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, etc. Get get your hands on a, on a either a printed map or a digital map or integrate to to an whatever your app favorite is to allow people to to experience the trail in a way that they want to experience. We added to our portfolio I said we we have a lot of trail and we're not really trying to add more quantity of trail, but we recognize that some people are single track fans and other people are more gravel riding fans. So about a year ago, we added category to to our um, universe uh, and we mapped out about 250 miles of gravel routes in and around our Bayfield to Hayward um, window. And so if you're, if you're a single track fan, you can ride single track within that window. And if you're, uh, maybe just a grab, I guess, but if you're, if you're not a single track fan or, to, or Wednesday, you're a gravel fan, Thursday, you're a single track fan. We have a, we have a, um, awesome, easily accessible, uh, gravel mapped system across that same window. Um, so we started with, you know, we've made a bunch of changes. We have all of those uh, changes to the strategic plan, changes to the branding and sort of the essence of Canva, changes to the way we communicate with our with our members and our and our fans, uh, change in the products that we offer, whether they be hat to wear or how you experience our our single track or our, or our gravel routes, all of which is meant to you know help Canva expand from from an organization putting trails on the ground to an organization building a community of people that love to come to the Hayward area. So, so how about your raffles? Uh, this year, uh, you know, we're in 2020, which is a unique year for, I think, Everything. everybody. <laughs> you know, something that isn't changed in 2020. That's a good question, isn't it? Exactly. Um, you know, so you've, I think you did a truck raffle or are doing a truck raffle. Do you, first, let's, do, you, do you have any raffles that are currently going on that will be going on through the release of this podcast? So a quick plug there for that. Yeah. So um, we are about technically today, the day that we're recording this podcast, we do not have an ongoing raffle, but we are close to launching uh, our next series of raffle fundraisers. Uh, and that'll be, that'll be bike focused. Uh, uh, we, we should we should back up and you know talk talk a little bit. I'll get us to that to those raffles. So one of the challenges in running an organization that you need to have a two hundred fifty thousand dollar income budget to manage every year is just like any business is is driving the income side of of that so that you can do the awesome things that you want to do with the trails or the community. And so there's a lot of ways that a, that a small nonprofit does that in the cycling world. Um, and, and in buckets, you can there's there's traditional fundraising. Uh, you know, there's uh, we're we're doing a capital drive because we need to buy a new excavator. We're doing a capital drive because we need to put in this two miles of trail. And so you you know, there's traditional fundraising around that. Then there is memberships and donations. These are uh, individuals getting involved with the organization because they're passionate about it. They might not have time to volunteer, but they're passionate and they make a donation or they they buy their membership. Uh, to help contribute to the to the financial success of the organization, the the other way, you'd, the next way would be events. So you put on an event, 
charge people to to participate in in the event and and then drive some of the funding back to uh, the organization drive some funding back to the organization via the profits of putting on that that event uh, and then the, the kind of the last that that we have is a is a specific category of fundraising and that's raffling um, because uh, we find that it's one of the most successful ways that we've been able to drive funding is is through raffles. Traditionally, in a in a year that isn't 2020, those raffles would oftentimes be connected with an event. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do Schwamigan 40. That's not our event, not Canva's event. It's not even actually on Canva single track, but it's here in our area, and it brings a few thousand mountain bikers every year to the area. And so we throw a party and raffle off of a few bicycles or something, some cycling oriented stuff because it's a very cycling specific audience. And those have always been successful because who doesn't want to uh, lay down $50 in hopes that you're going to win a new bike? And you know, at the same time, if you don't win the new bike, the $50 went to the nonprofit that takes care of the trails. So those have always been successful for us, but they've always been inside the cycling world. And so we'll, we intend to continue doing those. We have an awesome bunch of businesses that believe in our mission and believe in our, in our vision of creating this mountain bike destination here in the Hayward area or promoting it. And so oftentimes they'll provide a bicycle for us to raffle off uh, or provide the funding to help us buy a bicycle to, to, to raffle off. And we'll continue to doing that. But last year, we came up with an idea of how can we get out? How can we do a raffle that gets us outside of that cycling community? And now, and I said earlier that, you know, lay down $50 for a raffle because you might win a bike. But if you don't win the bike, you feel like, okay, that's pretty cool because I still contributed $50 to a trail organization that, that I'm proud to be associated with. Well, that last part goes away if you're not a cyclist. So, so the prize better be damn good is, is the point. So uh, to, to get somebody to lay down their raffle money. So um, we went to the local Ford dealer last year who's a super supporter of Canva. He, he personally is, is quite a supporter of Canva. And we worked out a deal with with them that we could buy a truck uh, for a reasonable price, and we would turn around and raffle that truck off uh, during the course of the season. And our intention all along was that would be targeted at our normal mountain bike community, of course, but at the same time, it would allow us to maybe target that to uh, as a fundraising effort to people that weren't part of the mountain bike community. So whether that's at the Berkey Ski Race or the Lumberjack Festival, or the Sawyer County Fair, or the Muskie Fest, or Fall, fall Festival day, Days on Hayward Main Street, those events that bring a lot of people into town, but they're not necessarily mountain bikers, and so they're not really going to be interested in coming to a mountain bike event or participating in to, to win a bike raffle. But a lot of them turned out they might be interested in, in winning a new truck by laying down their, their money for a ticket. So we did that this year. Um, organized that deal started our raffle drive March 1st, started selling tickets, did it at the Berkey. And then lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, boom, everything shut down and and COVID-19 changed 2020 into a totally different world. And so we had laid out the raffle that it was, uh, we had to sell a thousand tickets. It was 1500 tickets total, 50 bucks a piece. Then we'd buy the truck and hand off the truck to, to the winner. And if we didn't sell a thousand tickets, then it reverted to a 50-50 cash raffle. 
So in other words, if we sold 900 tickets, brought in whatever that, my math is not in my head. Uh, why am I? Uh, nine, 90 tickets, 50 bucks a piece for $45,000. We would split that money with whoever the winning ticket was. Uh, and it, 900 tickets is an arbitrary number, but if we sold less than a thousand mm-hmm. and that's where we ended up, uh, we didn't quite sell a thousand because all the event, the, the mountain bike events that we intended to sell a bunch of tickets at, none of those happened this year. So, uh, we, I'm confident we would have. We ended up selling about 950 tickets. Um, so I'm fairly confident that had the events happened, it would have been a super successful fundraiser. It still was successful because you do the math on 95, 950 tickets. We shared that with us and we, you know, we drove 20 plus thousand dollars back, back to Canva. You got to take your expenses out of, out of running the event, uh, out of that. But we, we still drove $20,000 back, back to Canva in terms of fundraisers. But we didn't get to give away a truck, so it was kind of it was kind of disappointing because I was always really looking forward to handing somebody the keys to a to a brand new truck. But I think what it taught us is there there is a way to 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 drive fundraising outside of the mountain bike community, but it's a big it, you have to do something big because mm-hmm. uh, you know if you think about you're in some town and somebody's giving away an ATV. Uh, if you buy a ticket, well, if you're not into ATVs, you probably don't buy a ticket. If you're not into whatever the cause is in the first place, and then to whatever the prize is, you probably don't buy a ticket. But if you're into one or the other, you might give away a ticket. And if you're into both, well, then that's the easy win. So, so how do you how do you figure out how to put that formula together? And that's in fundraising through raffles has become one of the go tos for for Cambo. That's a budgeted line item is raffle fundraising and we plan every year to do that again through the partnerships we have with a bunch of great businesses and sponsors that love Canva as well that help us with the prize in the first place and as i said sometimes we're buying the prize and we were going to buy the truck mm-hmm. sometimes somebody donates a prize uh, to us to to do that but it turns around builds it builds a great interaction with the community provides some funding funding back to the organization if it's a sponsor, it also allows us to promote their product. So the local Ford dealer was a, was a, is a sponsor of Canva. And so we promoted the Ford dealership all through that raffle, not just to the mountain bikers, but they were excited as well because we were going to go to Lumberjack World Championships and Muskie Fest and all those other, mm-hmm. other opportunities that they liked seeing. Well, they, they actually loaned us a truck with a big sign on the stop on the side of it. And we'd sit off the back of it with a, easy up and sell raffle tickets. So it was good advertisement for them as well to, to the audience. So I think there's a really good, there's a formula in there as a nonprofit that you can connect with your audience, connect with an audience that isn't quite your audience, connect that audience with a sponsor and drive funding back to the, to the organization. So, uh, and then that's funding. If you think about a nonprofit, you know, if, if I make a donation that's for a new excavator, I give you a given organization. Here's my thousand dollar donation. I want it to go to an excavator. Well, you can't now take that thousand and spend it on something else, you know, to, for a trail or to pay a bill for an event or whatever. That thousand dollars now needs to go to whatever it was donated for. The beauty of a of a raffle fundraiser is it can go into the general fund to run the organization to pay your bills for wherever you store that excavator to to pay your trail staff to be out on the trail to pay your executive director to 
buy maps so that you can sell maps or give away maps, however you do that. All those things take take funding in an, in an, in an organization you, for a nonprofit. You need that. You need uh, dedicated funding because you're going to do a capital fundraiser around an activity, but you need to, money that is discretionary that you can use to re- to run the organization as well. So, so we'll have a we'll have a whole uh, spate uh, or menu of of uh, raffles for next year, both targeted at mountain bike community, but also you know we learned a lot about targeting to a non mountain bike community. So, the biggest takeaway I got there, and I think it's something at least I've never thought of it, and I've been involved with nonprofits for a long time is that you had an out in case you didn't sell the number you want to hit. And I th- that is important because, you know, somebody might want a truck, but everybody wants cash too. Yeah. Yeah. And- you know, so to be creative enough to think of an, of an alternative prize, if you didn't hit the benchmark you intended on hitting because of something like COVID that nobody could have predicted. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really interesting because we were at the, we went to the sawmill where we had always said that's where we're going to do the pull the raffle tickets, right? Because when we originally set it all up, that was the date that Schwamigan 40 was meant to be. And we you know, figured, well, we can move from Schwamigan 40 out at the race site to a party at the sawmill afterward. And that's where we can draw the ticket. Well, we said we were going to draw it at the sawmill on, on September 18 or 19, whatever the date was for Schwamigan. Well, lo and behold, we still thought, well, we better go to the sawmill and draw a ticket. So we, outside at the sawmill, masked up. We were setting up to draw draw the ticket. And uh, two or three people came up to us and said, I want to buy a raffle ticket. And, and you know, at that point, we knew we were drawing for a cash raffle, not for the truck. And, and they came up and said, oh, sorry, a couple of people came up and said, I want to buy a truck raffle ticket. And... And we said, well, we can sell you a ticket, but we, before we do that, you should be aware that at this point, we're not going to be awarding a truck because we didn't sell enough tickets. We're going to be awarding 50-50 cash. And they were just took that and stride, didn't care. Well, I, don't, I don't care. What's How much cash? And it's like, I don't know. It depends on how many tickets we sell in the next hour, but 20 plus thousand dollars to the winner. And they were like, sign me up. I'll take two. <laughs> so so the, what, there's a thing to learn there is that get creative around what they what the grand prize is, but leave yourself an out as you put it, so that you don't lose money on the total effort or or mm-hmm. you know, it was a year long effort for us to do that. I didn't want that all to feel like it was wasted effort. And when we came up with the if you if you went reverted to just splitting the cash with with somebody, that that would still be pretty exciting, even if it was like eight thousand dollars. Like you were so far short that it that it it felt like, well, that's still going to be fairly exciting for somebody to walk away with, with a pile of cash like that for the for the raffle. Uh, and it's interesting when we were first selling it, people, few people said, "I'm really not sure I want a truck." And I said, "Well, win the truck, sell it immediately, turn around, take that money, whatever you want, and mm-hmm. go buy whatever it is that would turn you on with it." Because hopefully, you know, you'd sell that. It was a truck that had a window sticker of 35. So let's say you can turn around and sell it for 30 the next day. Well, that's $30,000 that you can go spend on something. More than likely, whatever it is you are interested in is less than 30. If it's more than 30, then I can't help you. But yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a interesting idea when we first kind of put it up against the wall to see if it would stick. 
and it and it, sure enough, it was it was super successful. I, we called the winner uh, was which is awesome. A high school teacher from the Hayward area won, which is just really cool to to be able to award it like that. To you know, we all know what a high school teacher makes for an income, right? So it was super exciting for him, and he was so excited when on the phone, you know. And yeah, sure, it would have been fun to have a truck, but oh my god, I've never won anything like this before. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Good. Yeah, when we've done our bike raffles down here, we've we've stuck with bike raffles, but we've left an out in terms of uh, size and model. Like we always market a model, you know, whether yeah. it's a mountain bike or a road bike. Sure. But you know, and we try to make it a broad model. So, for example, we've raffled off a truck Amanda. We've raffled off um, a truck Top Fuel EX. Yeah. You know, yeah. but if you have it specific, like your size isn't my size. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's, and that's worked out really well also. Yeah. We, we've, we've tried really hard to do that because you don't know who's going to win it. And Mm -hmm. uh, so even when it's a specific bike, so we had an awesome relationship with new moon, one of the bike shops in town, we have an awesome relationship with both of the bike shops in town, but new moon participated in the second place prize on the truck raffle. And it was a specific bike. I think it was a stump jumper comp. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe there's another modifier on the back of that that I'm forgetting, but you know, stump jumper comp. And so it was a specific model with a specific value, but came, came in two colors and multiple sizes. And that, that part was up to you and new moon, what you, what you could organize uh, there. Yeah. If you really preferred color a versus color B and you needed whatever the size was, they were going to sort that out for them. And so that's, I think that's been really important as well to know that whatever, if I do win this, I'm going to get the specific one that works for me. So. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to, uh, the bike industry side of things. You sure. know, you've, you spent, uh, 90% of your career on the bike industry side. And now obviously you're, you know, we've been talking about the nonprofit side. What have you learned since you've been on the nonprofit side after leaving the retail and wholesale side of things and manufacturer side of things. We're not on video, so nobody can see me smiling because the list is so <laughs> long. Wow. So, okay. So you for, can maybe just hit on your, your most important key oh, things. Yeah. I won't, I won't cover everything, <laughs> but, but here, here's the reality. People that work at bike shop or bike companies in the bike industry, whether it's a shop, bike company, you know, whatever it is, they're all there because they're passionate about cycling in some at some level, what, whatever that is. I mean, sure, there's a there's an accountant there that may not be a cyclist, but but I find that they all become kind of infected with uh, the enthusiasm that's around them for the cycling world, even if you didn't walk in the door uh, originally as a cyclist. But they're all tasked with something. You're a designer. You're a product manager, you're a salesperson, you're a, whatever your job is, is what your task is. And in the end, that's what you're really doing in your job, building new products, selling new products, whatever that is. And so I, I came out of that and I had all those jobs that we talked about before. And so I felt like I knew a ton about the cycling industry. And honestly, <clears throat> I walked in the door to a nonprofit and I thought, well, you know, I, I know all about the cycling world. This, I, can, I can be part of a board that like what is there to learn? Okay. I don't, I don't really know how to run an excavator, but I'm smart. I can figure that out if I have to, I guess. And you realize once you do get involved with 
cycling advocacy, that it's completely different than what you thought it was when you're in, in the industry. I think, I think a lot of people, whether you're in the industry or whether you're just, not just, sorry, whether you're an enthusiast or whether you're in the industry, whichever side or both, you really don't know how a trail gets on the ground, why a trail gets on the ground, what it takes to get it on the ground, what it takes to fund it, what it takes to maintain it, what all the other things are that are in the universe around those activities that have to happen for, for a advocacy group or in a small nonprofit, you can relate to them because running a business is running a business, as I said before, but you really don't understand all the things that, that have to be done there. Um, trails cost a lot of money. Like one of the things that I learned when I got here was what does it actually take in money, in actual money to, to put a trail on the ground? And, and because I'm a, metrics kind of guy, I break it down to cost per foot. And so for us to put a new trail on the ground, for Canva to put a new trail on the ground, that costs somewhere between three and seven dollars a foot. Seven would be really rocky on the side of a steep hill with a lot of jumps and features. And three would be kind of your standard cross-country trail that sort of meanders through the through the woods. That's to put it on the ground. But then on top of that, you need to allocate money to maintain that trail. And we say it's probably 25, 30 cents a mile per year should be thought of as what your budget should be to maintain those trails. Well, that all seems relatively understandable. But then you get to, there's the negotiation with whoever the land manager or landowner is. They have goals and things that they're going to put on there. Can't go over here. It's too wet. Can't go over here because it's too close to this property line. Can't go over here because it's part of a wildlife conservancy. Can't go over here because it has got invasive species that you're going to end up spreading. All of those kinds of issues. Then, then you say, um, how how do you negotiate where your trail corridor is next to the ATV trail corridor, next to the snowmobile corridor, next to the hiking trail, next to the equestrian trail, and that land manager is trying to figure out all of that. And you need to be an asset and, and an assistant to them in that. You can't just walk in and demand, hey, I've got $50,000 in my hand. I want to put the trail down. It's way more complicated to them than they don't care about your funding. And they figure if you want to put a trail down, you'll go figure out your funding. They have to manage a forest. So now you're participating in managing a forest or managing a national forest or managing private land if it's that. So you're now helping to do that. Uh, interesting example in my case was. You know, e-bikes are a big thing in in the mountain in the cycling world, and all the bike companies are selling them. Um, and so when I walked in, I said to the Cambo, "Well, we should be figuring out how to allow e-bikes on the trail." I've told this story before. Oh yeah, you know. So put together a presentation, pulled in all of our land managers into a room, gave them a presentation, sort of a primer on this is what e-bikes are, and this is where the industry is heading. Opened the opened it up to questions at the, uh, sorry, tacked tack on to the end of that also was uh, uh, a demo experience. So invited uh, both of the local bike shops to bring out a bunch of demos, and and then we let all those land managers ride them on the trail. After all that, opened it all up to questions. You know, what 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 do you, questions do you have as land managers? And they start throwing questions at me like, 
how fast do these things go? Where's the regulation on that? How, how do trails need to change to, to accommodate these bicycles? Do they do more damage to, to a trail and how, how are you going to take care of that? All of which, even as an industry insider and then an advocate, I didn't have answers for that. And, and the industry mm-hmm. really hasn't provided a, a bunch of really great answers for that. And so you quickly realize that it's, that it's never as simple as can't Canva just approve e-mountain bikes on the trails? Uh, no, because we work with a bunch of land managers that have their concerns and we have to satisfy those concerns before we allow e-mountain bikes on there. Because if we don't, and we just broadcast that they're now allowed on the trails and they're not happy with that, well, we might lose access to the trail in general for, so that it's not just about e-mountain bikes. So we have a responsibility to a whole bunch of members to maintain these trails. And, and so it becomes all these issues become nuanced and, and uh, complicated through that. And that's probably what I, a summary of what I've learned as I stepped into advocacy is that the industry and advocacy are two different things. And advocacy is nuanced and complicated in ways that the industry uh, isn't familiar with. Not that they don't want to be familiar with, but that's not their charge. They're doing other things. And, and so they're never, maybe never going to be familiar with that, which means advocates in industry have to work hand in hand. The industry needs the advocates. The advocates need the industry, whether it's for uh, funding or for partners or for, for whatever. It goes, goes both ways there. So. Yeah, and that's actually where I was going to go next. So how do you, you know, it, you, you bring up a very good point. You know, you, on the outside looking in, a person who is a, you know, person that just, you know, they go ride their mountain bike, whatnot. They probably assume that mountain bike company A just knows that trails have to happen and they're doing something about that, yeah. you know, but you're right. That person, whatever that person or whoever the people are within that industry, within that company, they're really just trying to do their job yeah. so they can keep, yeah. you know, keep their income coming in and whatnot. Right. So what do you think a good avenue is? Cause I do think this is a, a composite thing. I think it's a partnership thing. I don't think it's on any one side of the coin. What do you think a good way is to start engaging or, or continue to engage the bike industry or any other industry with the advocacy side, the access side, the funding side, all the ingredients that come together for making this stuff happen? Right. Well, it's, it's of course complicated. So the first thing I'd tell, the first thing I'd tell um, anybody, any insider in the industry, so we're on the industry side now, Mm -hmm. I tell is you have to recognize that your job, even if your job is developing a new mountain bike, if your job is sales to a bike shop, if your job is at a bike shop, selling bikes to uh, an enthusiast at each all of those people need, first need to realize that without trails, there are no bike sales, no mountain bike sales. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So, trails equal mountain bike sale, and and it's at, it needs to be uh, thought about and talked about at the industry level as a core activity, not just putting a bike together with all the new Shimano or Fox or or SRAM parts on it, but rather just as important is. Where is this person going to ride that bike? And and so if you any time there's a community with a bike shop that doesn't have trails nearby, that should be seen as a challenge and a problem, or first as a problem and then a challenge to figure out how to overcome from the industry side. 
because you can't sell mountain bikes without mountain bike trails to, to ride. Mm-hmm. Them. And that cascades all the way back. If you're, if you're at a bike shop and you're the owner or the manager or whatever you are, that's the first message back to the industry is I need help getting trails in my area. The advocates are probably out there. They're, they're, it, that's, it's easy to become an advocate. It's hard to connect back to the industry. But if you're in that shop, if you can talk to your industry connections about, I need trails so I can sell mountain bikes, what you need out of the industry is you, is you frankly need funding and connection to the ability to connect advocates with land managers that uh, are open to the concept of putting trails down. And then, of course, once you have that connection to those land managers, trails take money and, and, and people. The bike companies and the industry might be able to provide some of both of those. They certainly can, could provide funding avenues, and some bike companies are doing that these days. Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, they might also be able to provide uh, people resources. That depends on who the company is, how big they are. And, and you know, yeah, if you're a small bike company with five or six employees, it might be hard to provide a lot of people resources, uh, whereas the bigger companies might be able to help provide some people resources as well. But everybody can help provide funding because you're, it, it is a circle. You know, funding trails helps your retailer sell more bikes, which then helps you sell more bikes. So it kind of is that, that circle. As, a, as an advocate, I'm not shy about that statement. Like, I'm not shy to tell the local bike shops that they need to be involved with and and sponsor or donate or come out and help on work days because they don't sell bikes without trails. Uh, and And I'm also not shy to broadcast to the industry that the industry needs to step up and and be involved uh, at whatever capacity they can be involved with. I, I did that this past year. I wrote an article, uh, sort of an open letter to the industry, uh, and actually, People for Bikes invited me out to to present that to an industry group, and I, and it and it resonates. It it people listen and they and they start. I I think my message to most advocates is your voice is more important than you might think it is. If you talk to the local bike shop, if you reach out to whatever the local bike company is, they probably know at some level that they need to get involved but their job description doesn't say get involved with the local advocate groups it says design a new bike or sell a new bike or market our our new campaign around this new bike or you know whatever that is but it doesn't say get involved but they know it at their core that that they that they need to be involved in some way with advocacy so I, i my answer is just Talk to them. Get at, you know. Get in front of them. Call them. Uh, if you were to call all of the big bicycle companies and ask them if there's somebody there that uh, works with advocacy, probably they have somebody, and, and probably you can at least get an email address to to send them a note and ask for a conversation. Uh, don't be shy to ask. Recognize that you want to help connect the dots. Much like if you were ever a sponsored athlete, nobody cares about just sponsoring somebody that isn't going to return some value to to their mm-hmm. company and their brand. It's the same with advocacy. If I was to call up the local bike company and say, I'm asking for a donation that I can raffle off this bike. And if I raffle off this bike and I generate $5,000 from doing it, it's going into this trail. 
that trail will allow this local bike shop, which sells your brand to sell more bikes. And so connect the dots for them, you know, learn, learn to not just ask for the donation and the money, but to tell them why it's going to benefit them, you know, help them connect the dots with that. So, yeah. Uh, one of the other things that's going on in recent years, especially, what do you, what are your thoughts on the, ex- I think there's been an explosion of mountain biking, or I, I guess you could say a, a resurgence, you know, we had a big boom in the nineties yeah. that went to probably around 99 ish before things kind of started leveling off and going down. And now, um, even prior to COVID, which COVID just brought ramp things up to a whole new level when it came yeah. to, when it comes to trail use in general, and, and that's across all forms of outdoor recreation. I don't know whether it's hiking, biking, climbing, paddling, you name it. Right. People are getting outside. You know, what are your thoughts on that um, the last few years? And, and what do you think that's attributed to? And how do we keep that moving? Yeah. So this becomes, you know, now we start to overlap with my consulting business a little bit. Yeah. And, and my advice to folks has been, look at 2019. Don't look at 2020. 2020 is not a, is not, that's an abnormal uh, or an anomaly. 2021 or post COVID goes back to something that's more relatable to what 2019 was. Mm -hmm. 2019, if you look at general trends in 2019, road bikes were going down. They had been going down for a number of years before that. A fairly significant number, somewhere three to 5% every year of the past years, road bikes had been declining. At the same time, mountain bikes have been increasing by a similar number across the industry. So it, so it represents a shift from road people riding bikes on roads to people riding bikes on uh, a non-paved surface. And I say non-paved because sometimes it's single track, but sometimes it's a gravel road. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is driven by all the things we would imagine. You know, if you're not riding on a protected bike path, it feels more and more awkward every day to be or more and more vulnerable maybe every day to be riding your bike with a 5,000 pound SUV passing right by your shoulder. So, and the, you know, all the issues of crowded streets, distracted driving, mobile phones, blah, 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 all those things contribute to that. And in most countries around the world that don't have protected bike lanes, they're seeing the same thing that, that road, that road bikes as recreational activity has been on on a decline mountain bikes because you don't have all those same issues you don't have a 5000 pound suv driving right by your shoulder doesn't have those in, inherent challenges the challenges with mountain biking is well mountain bikes not terribly fun to ride on a road i mean mountain bikes are are fun and exciting to ride on a non paved surface and so that's why trails become even more important but i would i anticipate I wish I had an actual crystal ball, but my crystal ball that I talk, that I quote is that that will continue. I think road bikes continue to decline. The only thing that can save that is more paved infrastructure that allows people to separate from cars. And if you take my $3 a foot number that it takes to build a mountain bike trail, well, to build a paved separated bike trail, it's significantly more than $3 a foot. So the the opportunity from the advocacy side is so much greater on the mountain bike side than on the paved surface side, um, because it's just so much more economical to to build a, a dirt trail. And because more and more dirt trails are being built, whether that's through a local advocate group like ourself or like yours, Josh, who are putting trails down local to a community, 
or more and more trails that are destination worthy, whether that's someplace like Cuyuna uh, in upper Minnesota or here at Canva in northern Wisconsin or the big kind of marquee places like Fruta or Moab. Those places are seeing more and more visitors and more guests all the time. Imba's efforts and their their focus on trails close to home is their tagline, meaning trails close to where people live. All of those efforts will help to continue to fuel mountain bikes. And the mountain bike world is an exciting world. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, if I draw a three or four hour circle around my house, three or four hour drive circle around my house today, I don't even... I don't even know how many. I bet I bet it's 10 or more places that I can go ride my mountain bike. And I know 10 years ago, it was not 10. It was one, two, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's just feels like it's poised to continue to, to grow uh, as, as we all in the industry figure out how to incorporate mountain bikes with mountain bikes. That will also help us see, see growth. I think the mountain bike world is just poised to continue to to grow and and unfortunately it's probably at some of it's at the expense of road bike sales and road biking in this country but you know that's not necessarily not necessarily bad because it's still out on a bike and it's still fun uh so that's i guess that's my view and that kind of like i said you know that kind of gets into my consulting business there as i work with people to try and understand that trend and try and uh, invest properly and and uh, reshape their business along those lines. So, yeah. Well, I think I think we've pretty much covered everything that that I was looking or that we that is good to share with the the masses. Yeah, yeah. Um, the masses of mountain bike radio and those who listen to this new show, Trail Effect. Um, is there anything you'd like to add on the end before we hit stop on the recording? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a lot of. You know, there's those of us that are 59 years old um, that have been riding for 30 or 40 years now. Um, recognize that it's been a big transition to get to where we are, to get to that 10 areas within four hour circle of my house has been a huge undertaking that a lot of people have worked really, really hard at, at getting us there. Uh, and it's super exciting. And I'm really, really excited about all the new mountain bikers that I see on trails when I, when I go ride. But my message to everybody is get involved. Um, none of this happens without people getting involved. There isn't some magic trail ferry out there. The, the, the state government is not looking out for mountain bikers. There isn't a, an office of mountain biking in the state government. Um, there, there's, there's nobody looking out for it. The industry is doing their thing because they're running a business that's based on profits. So they're not like spending all of their effort trying to create and, and further mountain bike advocacy. It's frankly all of us that, that do that. Um, so get involved in some way. If, you're, if you want to, you can make a career out of this. Uh, Canva's just hiring a new executive director and we're not alone in that. If you look on the IMBA website, they're always hire some club somewhere is hiring a new executive director. It's a it's an exciting career that will be fulfilling. If you're in a different career but you love mountain biking, you can get involved with a with a board. Those are usually volunteer positions. Almost every organization has elections from time to time to vote in a new board member. If that's too much, 
come to a trail work day. Uh, if that's too much, donate or become a member uh, because it's those funds that help build the trails that you probably love. So my, my message to everybody is get, it, get involved somewhere uh, because you, you'll, find it ful- you'll find it both frustrating and fulfilling at the same time. But you'll walk away at some point in the future and say, I'm proud that I did that. And I'm proud to have helped put that trail on the ground and build those events and build that community organization. Uh, so, yeah. There you go. That's my, my message is get involved somehow. Yeah. And to expand on that, you know, I'm, I'm out on the trails working on them frequently and I hear, you know, people come up to me all the time and say, Oh, I just, I couldn't make that volunteer work event because of whatever. Right. Yeah. And to me, that doesn't matter. I don't, I always, my response back to them is always just support what we do, whether that's monetarily, but at the most basic level, when there is, you know, in lacrosse, we had some pretty, What's the word? We we had some challenging, challenging challenging times here this this calendar year with uh, with some opposition to some trails that we've actually officially re- opened as of yesterday. Uh-huh. And just show up to a meeting, you yeah. know, just take two hours and show up to a city council meeting or whatever it is, whatever meeting it is that helps show people that aren't in mountain biking or aren't in the trails community that this is important to your community. You know, and not everybody needs to, you know, have a shovel. Not everybody needs to even donate money, but to show up in numbers and to show support and to just, you know, really be vocal, become the vocal majority towards positive change. That's usually what I tell people. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And even, um, I don't even care if it's vocal majority. I just want to see a couple of people show up to a city council meeting or show up to or, or, or answer, answer questions around the national forests when, they, when they're trying to put a policy in place and they open a public commentary period. Mm-hmm. Just you know, take that 10 minutes to put your thoughts down on their website where they, where they ask you to. Those things matter. Uh, you know, as I said, there isn't an office of, of mountain biking at, in the state government. There, there is a bunch of elected people that are trying to reflect what their constituents want uh and and you count you are one of those so if you show up to a meeting and say my family would really appreciate mountain bike trails in my neighborhood would love to be connected to those mountain bike trails even if you can't offer why you came and said that you would appreciate that as a taxpayer so those things do matter so yep yep well thank you very much joe we'll uh We'll probably get this out here in the next, I think, I'm thinking three weeks. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Let us know at Canva. We'll ha- happy to promote it as well. Oh, for sure. Um, thank you again for your time. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio. Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.